Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amor is over. I'm into that. Maman? 
Andy, uh, if you if you were lying on your deathbed, mm. having just succumbed to your spouse's efforts to euthanize you, where would you want your friends and family to post their condolences? I would want them to go visit integrated. <laughs> is that not a good? If they, if they didn't, toss? if they didn't leave, <laughs> if they didn't leave messages to me at Instagram.com/slash the next reel. Yeah, I would be hurt from beyond. Sure, you want to know? You want to know that there that, that you can share with them and know that it's going out into the into the world that other people can can share their thoughts. So I think you're right. I think you do that at Instagram.com slash the next reel. And that's also where, you know, I'd want them to go there because then they could also learn more about the shows we're talking about, not just on this show, but yeah. on Marvel Movie Minute, on Trailer Rewind, on the film board. Uh, you know, there's so many things that they can glean from that. And it would be my final gift to them. And there's a lot to learn. So There much. really is. There's a lot so of fun pictures to, to look at. Oh, such good pictures. And after they're there, they should head mm-hmm. over to uh, their podcatcher of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Overcast, uh, Downcast, uh, Stitcher, wherever it is, and they should leave a rating and review. There's nothing like a nice five-star review to tell us those exact same thoughts about yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, about their thoughts uh, of the show and uh, how they feel. Uh, by doing that, it helps other people find the show, too. It sure does. Thank you, everybody. We appreciate your time. We don't like asking for it. Let's just be clear. We don't like asking for reviews as much as you probably aren't crazy about taking your time to go do the reviews. Just know it really helps others find the show. So we appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Gracias. Or or merci, more fitting for this particular film. Andy, let's talk about Amour. Isn't it odd that this, uh, uh, one could argue Z is the first in this series that that is a non-translated title. Right. That I guess you could make that case for Z, Zed. <laughs> one could. Technically, the Postman was both, at least upon its release, the Postman Il Postino. Right, they just wanted to cover all their bases, yeah. And here, it's I, I've never seen this released as love. It's always amour. It's, it sounds so wrong, releasing it as love. That sounds broken. But that's what it is. But isn't that weird that it, it actually sounds better? And I think it's just a word that everybody knows when you say mm-hmm. amour. It translates well, and so I just I just had to point that out. This is a, an interesting, um, an interesting one here, and I guess I guess technically we'll have the same thing next week. You well, you are an astute observer of uh, film titles and language, yes, so that's what I'm here. You for. would be the one to catch that. Now, this is the second time I saw this. I saw this in theaters actually, and I, I walked out, uh, doubled over because I had just been punched in the gut, and uh, once again I <laughs> watched this and. Uh, Immediately uh, felt like I had just been punched in the gut again. It's a tough film. It is a tough film. Is it tougher than Cries and Whispers? Like, where's the level of toughness? It's a different sort of tough, I guess. Actually, I think it's important that you bring up that comparison because I found myself wondering, like, just where the line is between this and Bergman. 
Like, are we just missing a coat of red paint and some genital mutilation? Because we're almost there with with how I I felt about this. I actually think it's safe to say I enjoyed my experience of this movie less than with Cries and Whispers. Uh, I I did not like it. I did not like my experience of it. I didn't. I I went back and forth between being extraordinarily bored to extraordinarily sad. And I thought this is going to be a very easy film to talk about because I'm just going to I'm just going to, you know, toss it off and be mad and i'm going to share my rage with andy and he'll tell me it's all lost in the quibbles and it'll be fine and and we'll be a one and a five in in our letterbox review and then uh, 30 minutes later i'm standing in the kitchen and i'm making myself some lunch and i find i I like i'm weeping (laughs) how does this how does this movie do this um and so i'm interested in in kind of pulling it apart i i didn't i i don't like it but to say that it wasn't impactful would be deeply disingenuous well, it's easy to say you don't like a film like this because it's a really hard film to watch, right? I mean, it's it is about being old and it's about being in a place when you're in a relationship with somebody else who is also old who has something happen and they basically start that long slow decline to death. And you know, what is the process of actually caring for somebody at this particular point in their lives? It's a very hard watch because of that. And because of that, it's not a fun watch. I mean, it's just, it is uh, just a very rough time uh, throughout. That being said, the story is incredibly strong. The performances are of the lead, the two leads, they're just, I mean, really amazing. And I mean, it's an incredibly honest story. And I think that's why it affects so much stronger. And to that end, I would absolutely, if I had to pick between this or Cries and Whispers, I would be putting this on first because I just feel like I'm getting more out of the story uh, in the relationship of this couple than I am in kind of just trying to pull apart all the different things that Bergman might be trying to say in his film. Yeah, no, I I agree with you on that point. I, I, I think we've got a class of films that really are those films that I'd rather just play with sand than watch either of them. Like, it's really that kind of experience for me. But to say it wasn't just sort of beautiful in its way, um, again, that that tosses off kind of what where the film is going. It's interesting, though, because I kept coming back to this reflection. Is this, is this a subject area that you can celebrate universally? Right. Is this something that is he telling the story that is something that is a human issue to the point that we watch it and we all get it? Um, and and is that or is this more of a, a Michael Haneke therapy film like this is something that is a uniquely Haneke experience? We'll talk a little bit about getting it made and where the story comes from in a bit. Uh, is this just something that only he can write about? And really, he made it for him. And if you kind of get along with it, then you might be part of that train, too. Uh, but it's not something that he ever expected uh, a mass market audience to latch on to. I don't know. I feel like there's more than that. I feel like th- this is far from uh, funny games, right? This is not the same in the same class as that type of film where he is purposefully making a film that is going to poke and provoke and, and cause reactions. This film, I, I do think that the context of it allowed for a story that is really kind of a universal uh, human story. And as as 
one could argue cold as it is the way that Haneke makes his films. I think that Michael Haneke is a very distant filmmaker. That doesn't mean that it's it's cold in emotion. Like I think that there is plenty of motion going on between uh particularly Georges, um, you know, because Anne is kind of not in a place. Although I will say that uh, there are some some pretty powerful moments from Anne as she is dealing with all of this. And, and so I think between the two, it, there's a lot of emotion, even if it is in a very kind of distant style that Haneke uses. I, I think it absolutely is a universal story. I, I think this is one of those movies that maybe I'm I, I need to acknowledge I'm not ready for yet. Right. Because what this movie makes you face is uh, a point in your life that is, you know, for me, 30 years down the road. And that's a lot of years down the road of, you know, of life that I'm ready and excited to live. And so this movie can't help but provoke that sort of what if experience, like what if something happens right now and w- one of us is suddenly in a place where we have to deal with this and uh, have to live with caring for somebody that we love very deeply and uh, figure out how to how to watch them die. And that is a torturous thing, I think. And that's that's part of why I'm reacting sort of the way I do. Like I I recognize what the movie is and what it stands for and what he's going for and also don't like it because I'm not ready for that experience yet. Not saying that any of us ever are really ready for that experience, but I I don't think I don't think I've I've sort of grown into the um, that that sort of space of grief that um, I, I just I didn't want it. I didn't want it. Well, and I had just gone through something somewhat comparable with, uh, you know, when my mother-in-law passed away somewhat recently. Sure. And it, there was definitely some feeling of that as I watched this. And kind of, I mean, it was totally different context as far as how how you know kind of what ended up uh, uh, leading to that but still it's just there's a lot of similarities in in the way that um the husband and wife handle that in the way that the children react to it and so i saw a lot of that in it and i in a weird way i actually think it it kind of got me through the film a little easier actually on the second watch than it did on the first watch because i felt like i had kind of been in that world more recently. So, so I do think that there is something to like, you know, being in a place for it and, and having kind of, um, kind of, cause it's not a place that, you know, kind of acknowledging, <laughs> acknowledging old age, acknowledging death, kind of this, this, uh, old thing called life that we're all kind of riddled with. Um, and, and this point where it's going to end, I think can be a, something that you know, a lot of people just don't want to think about and don't want to have deal with. And when, when somebody pushes it in front of you and you're watching, you know, a two hour film about a husband trying to take care of his wife as she slowly dies, uh, it's hard. It's there's a lot of stuff that you don't want to have to see throughout it. Two hours and six minutes, Andy. Let's get every bite of grief out of this movie. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I think that's really. Uh, I think that's really accurate. And um, we are dealing with something that's been portrayed in films before. And and so in terms of our conversation around best pictures uh, and best pictures dealing with the slow decline of a loved one, where does this one stand? 
Well, it's not even films that have been nominated, but it's like this one did get a nomination for Best Picture. There are other films out there like The Notebook, Philadelphia, Still Alice, etc., that approach this sort of uh, you know, thing in different ways. And th- there's mm-hmm. a, those are just a few. I mean, obviously, there's, there's many of them. Um, what is it about this one that really kind of sets it apart, that pushes it up that to that notch of saying, wow, not only should this have been nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, but it should absolutely have been nominated for Best Picture. Like, what is the, where's that line with this particular film? Like, do you see something about this that says, oh, even though this is a hard watch and I wish I didn't have to go through it, I can see why this is worthy of being nominated for Best Picture. This is a performer's film, and I think that's that's one of the things that makes it really stand out for me is that we see an uh, an age um, and two performers who are exemplary uh, at their craft, right? And that that what uh, Trintignant and Riva bring to this experience is second to none. I, I think that's one of the things that is um, unique. It is a showcase for actors, and Haneke gets right out of the way, right? I, I think the production of the film it is not flashy. It is not. It's it's hard to say it's cinematic. It, it's less cinematic than it is portraiture, right? I, the the use of long shots, the use of, of still camera to give us the sense of space and room and performance in this movie. Uh, those are two things that really stand out to me um, in, in the way this one, um, I, I think, has carved out its space in the experience of, of death and dying films. Look at Judy Dench in Iris, Iris, where she had Alzheimer's. She was fantastic in that film, and I think she uh, got an award nomination for it. Um, and same thing with Jim Broadbent playing her beleaguered husband, dealing with taking care of her. A lot of similarities, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. And still Alice, and that was a younger uh, Alzheimer thing with uh, uh, Julianne Moore. In every case, they're very much performer films. And that's what people notice them for. And that's largely what they get recognized for. And so it's interesting to me that this one does kind of stand out as saying, hey, not only is this a great performer film, but, you know, Haneke deserves a nod for his direction and the picture deserves a nod for best picture. I just find that very interesting that it uh, it got that uh, recognition. Um, and, you know, I mean, who knows? It's, it's, it's such a game as far as what gets nominated and what doesn't. Um, uh, you know, I just, I'm like, and I, I think to a certain extent, you're right, that the way that Haneke gets out of the way and allows the story to tell itself and is not a, a, a director who pushes for kind of the emotion and directs, you could argue Jonathan Demme probably pushed the script and the emotions a little more for Philadelphia. And it was, there, and there's obviously a whole court thing going on in that one, but um, there's, that became more of an actor film. And it's like, well, as, as Beck's picture, it's not quite up there. Mm-hmm. So I think that there might be something, some uh, case as far as, you know, the way that Haneke constructs his stories and then chooses to direct it that might lend itself better to that. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's one of the things that you see in this film, that there's a lot of drama left on the table, right? There are so many, as I'm watching this, so many opportunities for, uh, you know, particularly father and daughter to unwind 
with each other. There are so many sort of narrative opportunities to spin off and talk about, you know, the the case for elder abuse in, in this movie. And all of all of those little elements were left as little elements, like little sort of one scene we're going to wrap up and move on to get back to the experience of these two people. Had Jonathan Demme been behind the camera on this thing, we would have had a court case. <laughs> we would have had an elderly emancipation case. We would have had uh, elder abuse case. Like somebody would have been would have had their day in in trial for this movie. But that wasn't what this movie was about, right? This movie was about the experience of an old man taking care of his old wife and the experience of watching somebody he loves suffer deeply and how you how you internalize that and how you live every day with it. And then you stop. It does make me want to look at Iris again, though, and say, well, what what did they do in that film? Because honestly, I, I know I saw it. I just don't remember it that well. But it's like, what what was it about that film that did not push it to that level? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Because I know there was a lot of recognition for the performances, but uh, not so much for the film, as far as I recall. I mentioned uh, earlier long use of long shots. We've talked about just sort of Haneke getting out of the way. And then uh, as I'm thinking about this, watching the movie, I'm like, I should really check that one website that one time that we used to talk about all the time that cataloged the number of shots per film. And I couldn't ever <laughs> it. And you found it. I did. Yes, we used to use this quite a bit. Cinemetrics to look at the average shot length that uh, different movies would use uh, in and like how quick the cuts were. And and you pointed out, I mean, there are some long scenes like single take or single camera angles for scenes where you're just staring at something for a very long time. I mean, the opening of this film after kind of the initial kind of break in into the apartment, we're going we cut to a theater and we're just watching the audience sit and then the show starts and the performance starts, I should say, and uh, we're watching the audience watch the performer on stage. And it's just like, how long are we staring at these people? <laughs> it's going on for quite yeah. some time. Well, and then he does this thing where where he goes to sleep, like our our the, our characters go to sleep. And I thought everything broke. I thought I lost power in my house because yeah. the screen was dark, black for so long. Uh, I thought I thought I need to check that. I literally like paused the movie just to see if to get a playhead. And and I have a new definition for our glossary because of this, Pete. Outstanding. I know, what we, is we it? We don't use it. It's called Kanji Nights. Oh, because I think that this Andy. is something that Darius Kanji did so well in uh, when working with David Fincher is really, for night scenes, just making it so dark that you could almost not see anything that was actually going on. And here, as, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh, here Kanji is again. <laughs> Yeah. Really just proving that uh, he doesn't like using lights, uh, any blue lights or anything to signify night. It is just like black that you're staring at. <laughs> I love it. Kanji <laughs> nights going in the dictionary. Oh, but anyway, back to the cinemetrics. So I, I thought I'd look at a couple of the movies that we had been talking about in in recent uh, times on this particular series. Life is Beautiful, Roberto Benigni's film, have an, has an average shot length of six seconds. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of average across the board. When you jump to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, the, our next one in the series, that is uh, at four and a half seconds. So, which is odd because it actually feels like the shots would be shorter. I, and maybe it's just because of the action, but uh, I felt like Ang Lee had some rather longer shots in that one. 
Ang Lee constructs sequences, though, that are very, very similar of of shots that are very similar. And so they feel, I think, like they're strung together as a single shot. I, the, my sense memory of it is like he gets probably 15 seconds out of a shot that feels that long of just bamboo swaying. <laughs> but but they're definitely short. Made right, up definitely short. short so, yeah. Anyway, now when it comes to Haneke, unfortunately, Cinematrics has not broken down a more. So I can't break that one down specifically, but I can give you some information on some other Haneke films. And when I look at it, uh, Time of the Wolf has the shortest average shot length at 6.1. Let's see, the at- longest one is, uh, see, this is tricky because now people are starting to just do particular scenes. Funny Games look like looks like it's uh, closer to 19 and a half. Um, seconds average per shot. Um, Cash is 31.1 seconds per shot. Code Unknown, 35.6 seconds uh, per shot. The White Ribbon, 19.4. And uh, so it's definitely, I think, a Haneke thing. Order of magnitude longer. (laughs) Wow. Right. He's definitely uh, kind of jumping up a notch. And even, you know, and now I'm curious. Let me just... uh, um, I don't know if I should type Roma right now or save that for next week because I don't know if it's in here. But uh, I'll, I'll, I guess I will do some research and, and maybe jump into this next week and see. I think Roma, Roma's average shot length, whatever happens, is brought up a lot by the opening, like three shots. <laughs> uh, well, Roma's not in here, but unfortunately, Quaron is, and uh, mostly with gravity, which is <laughs> also at Haneke lengths. We're looking 25, 26 seconds per shot, so. I'm asking myself as I watch this movie, is this a showcase for a great writer and secondarily a great director? Part of me thinks that no one else could have written this film. This is a uniquely Haneke film experience. But really, you could hand the script over to Kanji and say, let's let's go. Just do do your best (laughs) that I'm not I'm not entirely sure um, if if this is a great showcase of a great director, because it is uh, it is sublimely mechanical right i i watch this thing and i i think there's like i this is something that my my french is not good enough to to read the script um you know to read the the nuance in french but um my sense is that i'm looking at what's on the page and performers doing their best to interpret it and i'm not sure how great of an example this is of haneke as a uh fantastic director um i i love the script have you, well have you have you seen much of his work i'm just curious to compare i've seen uh, i've seen a number of them I've seen funny games uh, i've seen a piano teacher um and uh let's see and amour that's what i've seen okay i've seen funny games uh cachet and amour and i and funny games i saw the original the german one not the remake and I, I haven't seen, it feels like I should have seen Time of the Wolf. Like, that's one of the movies I feel like of all of these. I should have seen that one first. Uh, but I haven't. So what are you going to do? Haneke's not a director that I seek out because I do find his films, his filmmaking style is so distant. And while I do find them incredibly interesting to watch, uh, it really requires me to... I, I guess I just have to be prepared for him. You know, Funny Games is 100% a film you really have to be ready for because it's just, it beats you over the head from the minute that that, in, that insane music kicks in when the, the opening credits start. Uh, Caché is one that it's just, I think it really enhanced, uh, it, it, it is enhanced when you're really paying attention to all the little subtle details that can be, can pass you by very quickly if you're not actually 
watching with a lot of attention. And uh, so that's that's what I find. We've talked about funny games on Satmat. Like, did you do you when you talk about it, do you like and appreciate the film? I do. I do. I, I definitely think what he's doing is like really interesting. And he is really pushing like he is doing some interesting button pushing of people to to kind of just violence in film and the way that things play out. I think is uh, done in a really interesting way that I I thought um, was incredibly effective. It also like when I saw that the, that he was doing a remake, I'm like, ooh, wow! I don't know if I'd go want to go watch that movie again. That was a yeah. tough one. And uh, and same if I had seen the the American one, I was like, I don't know if I would want to go watch the original. I, I just think that he makes very challenging films. Um, and so I don't know. I. I I, I think that he's, they're really interesting films to think about and they don't leave your brain. Like they really stick. And yeah. uh, so I find him really interesting. It's just, it's a, it's a challenge to watch. And this is a challenge in a different way. This one, I, I think that the way that he made this one, um, it still is very distant, but it's also, it is a more personal, more emotional story. You should see The Piano Teacher. And maybe watch it in a little trio of films. You would watch this and you would watch Secretary and maybe you would throw in that one from that director you don't watch. Was that Nymphomania? Nymphomaniac. Nymphomaniac. Yeah. 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 You should watch those three, a little trio of the piano teacher, secretary, and Nymphomaniac. Wow. I feel like I'm being set up. This is... No, I would never. I would never. Uh, you know, okay. So I have a question though to that end. Because because Haneke, I think, he is a filmmaker who purposefully provokes, right? He makes things that that push buttons and provokes. I, ta- I, I mentioned last week that he actually, in context of Holocaust films and in kind of a, an awards group interview, he had uh, been asked about Holocaust films, and he said that none of them should be made unless it's something like uh, uh, Night and Fog or something like that. And um, just something that was very uh, just documentarian uh, because it, it, it is something that requires a distance and, and, and you shouldn't be exploiting it. And I'm just, I, and not, I don't want to sound dismissive of that particular thought or the Holocaust in general, but is there a line when telling any story of grief? Like, is Haneke saying that? Should he also say, you know what, you're crossing a line for some people who are dealing with going through an emotional situation with a dying relative? I, I just I, I find his comment to be really interesting because as an artist, it's like, well, where is the line then? Like all of a sudden it's like you're not you're saying that that's such a big emotional thing for for people. But isn't this too? I mean, everyone ends up dealing with grief in some way and, and death. And it's just like I, I just find it interesting that he views lines in certain situations, but not others. I, I think you can make the case uh, pretty quickly that films about the Holocaust are examining what humanity has done to one another, like taking an active role through violence and, uh, you know, uh, racial ideology to, uh, you know, hurt and kill and decimate an entire population. And grief and dying is a universal human experience, right? We're not looking at um, you know, an age specifically talking about old age and and the health impacts of uh, that that happen when you're old that causes you to go down this train. And when you're talking about the Holocaust, that is that's examining specifically a, a state of hate and 
this film is not examining a state of hate. This film is actually examining a state of love that is so powerful it causes you to do things you never imagined you would be capable of doing to to another person that you care about so deeply. And I think that's something that's that's an important distinguishing factor that uh, I, I think that, you know, when I hear him talk about how he feels about Holocaust films, that's coming from from uh, somebody who's who grew up in in the experience of like, you know, and proximity to just judging by his age, right, where he is, uh, you know, born in Munich, like he is um, a, a Austro-German nationality like that's that's yeah. where he is so he has a perspective on what um people can do to one another for ideology that is different than just the human experience of age and and i think that is a distinguishing factor for me sure i i can i can see that I, and i'm just asking because i'm curious but i do think that there probably are some people who have might have gone through similar situations and and they they may not say what he said about he's crossing a line but they may say that's not a film i will ever watch because it's it's crossing a personal line for me and i i don't want to bring any of that up again so i just i think that that's what I find interesting about art. And that's why, personally, I disagree with his statement. And I say, you know what? There's a lot of value in using art to explore the the pain and, and kind of the, you know, the world of this uh, to help people better understand and hopefully help society continue to find ways to improve. Yeah. I, I, and I agree with that. I think that this is how we, this is how we process and we have to be able to make movies about it, right? I mean, I... I might not like the movies. <laughs> that's that's going to be okay, too. Yeah. Let's talk about getting made, Andy. I, I just thought, uh, it, well, I mean, speaking of, of personal stories, this one does come somewhat a personal story because um, Haneke had actually dealt with a an ill aunt and she had raised him and uh it was a it was kind of a difficult time in his life because he had to really suffer with her as she kind of went through a lot you know she was ill for a very long time she had very heavy rheumatism and lived by herself for a very long time didn't want to go into a nursing home had even asked him to euthanize her he pulled a lot from that whole story of his aunt to build this and put it together because she did end up committing suicide. And it was a kind of just a, a very personal story. What's interesting is he couldn't figure out how to end it. And from my understanding is they, they were already moving forward with it and they had the set built and he designed their house to be like his parents' house. And so he knew where everything was and he just had a way about it. And he ended up writing the rest of the script in the set because it really helped him. It put him into that place of these um, uh, aged people um, trying to kind of deal with this. We didn't mention earlier the actual smothering. You want to talk about how how that hit you? I remember in th in the theater, it. I mean, it blindsided me because I was just not expecting that at all. Uh, you know, I I and I had just had no hints or anything as to how the movie was going to end. And he's just kind of telling his little story, and then all of a sudden, boom! And I just remember snapping awake and just like a shiver going up my spine as I realized what was going on. And it just, uh, I mean, it just 
was just devastating to to watch and just and deal with. I love Oof. that you see, you characterized that you had to snap awake. I think that's appropriate language. I, but it's 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 not like I was asleep. But it's just like he's lulling you, just sure. like he's kind of calming her down with the way that he's telling this. Really, just kind of. I mean, it's kind of a sad story about being in camp and how he's miserable and all this stuff. Um, and it just, but the whole thing with the flowers and the stars and just like everything is just, it just kind of is so peaceful. And he, so, like, he gets her to to kind of calm down and everything, and then boom, it just does it. I was just like, "Whoa!" Right? Oof! Right? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was exactly that for me too. And and I had been, you know, in and out of just this experience of, oh, this movie is a snooze. But the end, I think that's that's the thing that forces. It's like opens the gate of the experience of the rest of the movie, right? And yeah. I I didn't know what I was taking in until that happened. And then it all – you're just awash with the entire experience of their relationship. And I think that's the piece that uh, I find so powerful and so sort of – that lasting experience of, of the, the film for me is just being – allowing that trigger, allowing the old man to smother his wife with a pillow and to do it with his own face buried in the pillow. Like the there's, – there's a sense of like the physicality of – like is he going to be capable of doing this? Is he strong right. enough to do this? Is he able enough to do this? But d- that he put so much of himself in that experience to euthanize his wife. And then just to, uh, just to be clear as far as the end of the film, because he goes through that and then there's the whole – the p- return of the pigeon, which he finds catches and and uh, then he's writing the letter to uh, to the daughter and after he's I mean he's cut the flowers and you know and we know where that is because we've seen it at the very beginning of the film but we don't have a sense of time passing like we don't have a sense of how long he's in there alone yeah right exactly I mean it seems like it's been a while based on how she looks at the very beginning of the film but also what I find interesting is they never actually at the beginning or end reveal what happens with him now I'm assuming he dies I'm assuming he dies in his bed and when he hears her in the kitchen and he goes in there my sense is that that's kind of uh, it's it's tricky because early in the film we have a memory of her playing the piano and and it cuts to him and then he turns the music off and you realize he's just having a memory while he's listening to this music and then at the end it's like okay so is he having a memory of Anne here as she's washing the dishes and then they are getting ready to leave um, or is this like her soul like coming and beckoning him to the other side sort of thing, which is how I end up taking it because we don't ever, I'm assuming he doesn't just walk out of the house and disappear off into the wilderness or something. That would be less satisfying. (laughs) Would be a lot less satisfying. (laughs) He's now living in the mountains of the Alps. Right. Right. Uh, But it's interesting. Like at the beginning, there's no reveal of finding that a second body. Yeah, no, that's right. And I actually went back and watched the beginning again just to see if anybody was playing around in that bed room but they never they never go to the bedroom and the next time we see anybody in the house at the end of the film it's just the daughter walking around the sort of hallowed space um so yeah that's uh, that's how i took it too and i actually thought it in terms of um vague endings i thought this one was pretty satisfying i find it very satisfying the way that he leaves with her i just find very um it, it very conclusive 
to the relationship and it's what I needed. And I, I, I do find as I watch the end, I'm like, you know, I guess I don't really need to find out that he is dead in the other room. I don't need to see that in order to find uh, the resolution I needed. And I'm not one to love these kinds of endings. And this one actually feels pretty resolved. What do you think of uh, Jean-Louis Trintignant? The Trint. Uh, our, our, our second actor uh, returning, a second lead actor returning in, in this series, uh, since we had Liv Ullman in Cries and Whispers, who we had talked about in The Emigrants way back. That's right. I, I think his performance in, in terms of just his experience of, um, you know, being the aging husband and being able to convey arguments that I've always found myself having in my head when confronting these kinds of things in my own life, um, that it, when he says to his daughter, who is expressing her grief over losing her own mother, when he says, your concern carries no weight for me right now, like you have to know, I, I know you're upset that I'm not calling you and keeping you updated, but honestly, I don't need you to know what's going on here. It's We're dealing with so much. The weight of our experience of the world right now is so heavy. I just can't. You don't get that from us. And I found that just that that scene just ripped my chest open like that was that was an incredibly powerful, but uh, albeit brief exchange between the two of them that I thought was incredibly powerful. And I think it really highlights what Trintignant is is great at. We have another little scene like that when he tells off the nurse, the elder abuse nurse and and pays her off to get out of the house. I think his he's cold uh in in these sequences um and as mechanical as Haneke is, you can tell that they came together for a reason. Very true. I I did find it interesting that when it comes to award nominations for this that uh he had far fewer than Emmanuel Riva. Even though I think that his performance is uh, equally as powerful, it's just a different type of strength in his particular performance. It's very quiet and it's dealing with the frustration and dealing with the anger and kind of keeping everything behind, uh, you know, as he just kind of goes through the motions of doing what he needs to do to take care of Anne. What was the, was it an Eddie Murphy performance? I can't remember. There's a there's a scene in a comedy where there's, it's a, a movie about actors and he says, oh, you've got to play the character who has the disability. Oh, no. <laughs> Murphy. No, that would be Robert Downey Jr. That's right. Oh, in uh, in Tropic Thunder. Yes, that was absolutely Thunder. Robert Downey yes. Jr. I hasten to hearken back to Tropic Thunder and Robert Downey Jr. when comparing to this film. But. There may be some truth to that. I mean, she, Emmanuel Riva, dominates in this movie because she plays exceptionally stroke symptomatic. Like, you yeah. see everything you expect to be going on inside of her uh, in her performance in this movie. It's stunning and painful. Uh, it, you know, when she when when her speech is affected and she can no longer like move and when she spits at him, the only action she has to, to do is to take the water that he has put in her mouth and spit it back at him. That is horrifying and nails my my sort of headcanon of that experience. It is for me, it's every bit the experience of the diving bell and the butterfly, which, huh, as you know, is another film that I don't need to watch another time. <laughs> well, and, you know, you brought up the spitting scene, which was incredibly powerful, but equally powerful. That's when he kind of breaks and slaps her and her reaction to that just uh, was like, oh, just the, the, the shock and the just the understanding and the devastation. Everything in that moment was just 
Oh, so hard. And when he comes home and finds her on the floor because she had apparently been trying to throw herself out the window because she just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And, uh, you know, just the conversations that she has about just not wanting to go through all of this, not wanting to deal with it herself, not wanting to you know, torment him and torture him. It's a, it's a very difficult place. And having to drag it out for as long as they do. I mean, as you said, there's no sense of time, really. But clearly, it's a while. And it's it's just a very hard, hard thing to deal with. And the two of them, I just think, are are just beautiful performance uh, performers throughout all of this. They just deliver stellar performances and heartbreaking performances. It's just, it's beautiful the way that they uh, build all of this on screen. Isabel Hubert as the daughter, Eva, um, she is, she's in and out, but she's, she's great. She doesn't have a very large performance, but she sort of punctuates the film with the grief of a child. Yeah. The grief of a child who has her own life and, and has to listen to, as you said, the moments when dad says, you know what, this is my problem. You need to step out. Yeah, you're not you the one here dealing with this day after day. Yeah. You're doing your own thing. We're doing ours. So I, I, I appreciate your concern, but step back. And having to deal with that was really interesting and just watching her. And she's just oh, she's just really a, a powerful performer. She's done a lot of great things uh, for a very long time. I mean, uh, and I, what was the one she did? Oh, it was the late 2000s or no, I can't remember. But uh, she's done a few things that uh, really stand out but she had done uh time of the wolf uh, she's done the piano, piano teacher, teacher. <laughs> she's she, yeah she's done some things with haneke before so is definitely kind of in his circles but of course just recently did l which was another really powerful uh, performance that she delivered there we talked about darius kanji for a film that is so static so much uh, so often you look at the cinematographer as what are they going to do that's really interesting with the camera but remember their job is really about lighting the scenes and, and creating a, a look for the film. And, and with a film that is so static, you have a lot of time of looking at these particular images. And he lights this space. I mean, this really, it's almost like a one room play, it's a play. right? I yeah. mean, that's really what it is. We're in this house the entire time. And I, I think he does uh, an exceptional, exceptional job of just creating this, this world and really giving us a, a beautiful look throughout. And beautiful in that kind of dark kanji way. You know, that's another thing that I think you appreciate more in the last 20 minutes of the film than you do in the first, you know, hour and 50. Um, it, it's a movie that um, that I think that the tone grew on me to the point where the first time we see that kitchen without anybody in it, uh, I realized what was going on and and the real sort of love that they put to the desaturated kind of European green chic of these old apartments. And um, I, I thought it was I, I thought it was pretty, it's pretty powerful. That kanji, he knows how to run a camera. Yeah, he's done a good job a few times. You want to talk about uh, you want to talk about awards? It's, we should talk about should awards. Talk about I should awards. Put, I should put, right. yeah. uh, this film had 82 wins, 105 other nominations. Definitely popular in the awards uh, circles. In fact, a lot of film critics listed this, if not in their top 10, uh, definitely the top. I mean, they were just really 
in love with this film. It was way up there. At the Oscars, uh, Best Picture, this is why we're here, it uh, was nominated for Best Picture, but lost to Argo. This was uh, in that uh, period shortly after they increased the number of nominations. And in this particular year, it was Argo, Amor, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. Argo is the one that won. Should it have... I don't think so. I think there were definitely better films that year, but um, I wouldn't have picked a more either. So that's how picture went down. Lead actress, uh, Emmanuel Riva was nominated for best, uh, best lead actress. She lost to Jennifer Lawrence in Silver Linings Playbook. And at the time, uh, and I believe it still holds true, she was 85 years old and 321 days and uh, at the uh, is the oldest ever nominee for Best Actress. And it's interesting, she earned this honor the same year that the award had its youngest ever nominee, and that was Quavon Janae Wallace in Peace of the Southern Wild. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, very oh, cute year. Man, what are your year. thoughts? Let's let's talk through this as we go. Emmanuel Riva, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Quavon Janae Wallace, Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty, and Naomi Watts in The Impossible. I've seen all of those. And I really like all of the films. I think there's strength in all of them. I don't know. Jennifer Lawrence is the big bombastic uh, performer that year. And to that extent, I could see why she won. And and everyone kind of had the Jennifer Lawrence thing. Uh, boy, I don't know. Would you pick Emmanuel Riva? Uh, you know, in terms of what she did with the with the role, yeah, I think I would have. I think for this for for this film for this slice of humanity, I think I would pick her because, you know, what we get with, and, and I, you know, I'm a big fan of Jennifer Lawrence and of that movie in particular. And I also think that, that there's, there is something to her and where she is in her career and what she brought. I mean, what she brought to the table was a great Jennifer Lawrence performance. I feel like that's being uh, a little... Uh, disingenuous to how great they are in that they film are because great in that movie. they are doing so much more than I had seen them do. So I, I personally would still pick Jennifer Lawrence because I just I think that it's really, it's a really surprising quirky performance from her. Well, so. and I know I sounds like I'm being super cynical, but I really mean this genuinely. Like I feel like that was Jennifer Lawrence giving a great, great Jennifer Lawrence performance. Uh, and I, I am never like I, it's. It's hard to get lost in, uh, in that performance, and I get, I get lost in grief with this performance from Riva. It, it's exceptional craft, and you know, there's also something politically to the whole. And, and you know, I don't. I, it's, Oscars pain me. <laughs> Here we are doing a ten episode series yeah, about I know, them. I know, <laughs> uh, but but there is something to the political nature of these of these performances, and and I think you know, at, at it, it would make a hell of a story to have the oldest nominee win for yeah the most challenging performance in the lot. Trintignant did not get a nomination for Best Performance by an actor in a leading role. Um, so I want to know, if you're going to take someone out uh, to put him in, who would you take out? And would you say that he wins? The winner was Daniel Day-Lewis in Lincoln. Bradley Cooper was nominated for Silver Linings Playbook. Denzel Washington for Flight. Hugh Jackman for Les Miserables. And Joaquin Phoenix in The Master. <laughs> uh. 
I wouldn't take any of them out. I know I wouldn't take any of them out. I don't think that's justified. I think I I, I honestly think his <laughs> Trenton Young's per, performance was was great. It was so mechanical. It doesn't hold up to to just about anything that anyone else is doing on screen there. Well, he's he's a very it's a very subtle, quiet performance, and that's why it's it's hard when you're looking at bigger performances. And that's yeah. Anyway, okay. So next up, we had uh, best directing. Uh, Michael Haneke lost to Ang Lee for Life of Pi, who we talked about last week. A uh, Best Original Screenplay lost to Django Unchained, Quentin Tarantino. And here's where it did win Best Foreign Language Film. That was the win it had in the other nominees were A Royal Affair, Contiki, No, and War Witch. I have now watched all of these, and I have to say, this is actually my least favorite of the bunch. I don't think any of them are five-star films, and honestly, I don't think any of them should have been nominated for Best Picture. But I would absolutely put Royal Affair up as the top of uh, my picks for Best Foreign Language Film. I haven't seen uh, all of them, so I, I don't feel like I can say it. I haven't seen a Royal Affair. I've seen Contiki and No. Uh, I haven't seen War Witch. So <laughs> I, I stand right, with right. Andy. <laughs> uh, the César Awards, these are the French Oscars. It had 10 nominations total, and it ended up winning for Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Film, Best Original Screenplay. It lost Best Cinematography to Farewell My Queen, as well as Best Production Design. Editing lost to Rust and Bone, and Sound lost to My Way. And Supporting Actress uh, Isabel Huppert lost to Valeria Bengigi in What's in a Name. Um, all told, Manuel Riva, it looks like she won about about a dozen or so of her about 45 nominations. And Jean-Louis Trintignant won about one of about a dozen nominations. So there's the there's the different differential sure. between uh, nominations for those two performances. How to do with the box office. Well, Haneke started with a budget of $9.7 million, which is $10.8 million in today's dollars. His movie premiered at Cannes in May 2012, before opening in Germany September 20th, 2012, then France October 24th, 2012. Finally opened in the U.S. December 19th, 2012, opposite The Guilt Trip, Jack Reacher, This Is 40, the 3D re-release of Monsters, Inc., and the limited release of Zero Dark Thirty and The Impossible. With the dark subject matter, this had a tough road to hoe and only ever got high enough to break into the top 20 once after the Oscar announcements when it landed in spot 19. This film went on to earn $6.7 million domestically and $30 million internationally, giving it a total adjusted gross of $41.2 million, which lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $239,000. Still, it is a profit to be happy with. So I'm curious. This is one of those films I finished watching it. I did my flick chart ranking and I thought, you know what? That's not great. Uh, but I wonder if this is a film that's going to really grow on me. It certainly has over the course of our conversation, over the course of the last day or two, uh, just find myself thinking about it. Um, I didn't enjoy my experience of the film, and I'd already slated this one as being one of those movies I'm going to watch once. Uh, but I'm, now that you've seen it twice, did it improve? Certainly. I mean, the first time I watched it, I was probably in a place more like you, where I was just like, oh, I was not in a place to watch a movie like that. <laughs> and it ended up really low on my flick chart. I, after this rewatch, um, I, I found more strengths in it and everything. I still, like I said, I wouldn't put it up on the awards for all of this, like so many critics did. Um, but it did climb in ranks, um, uh, personally. So. Okay. Well, we should take it to the mat and see how it does. We should. All right. Head, of, head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of the films that we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, 
It will take you over to this film in the FlickChart database, and you can add it to your list. See how it stands up against ours. First up, best foreign language uh, for not for best picture battle. Amor or Il Postino, The Postman? Il Postino. Il Postino. Amor or The Brood? <laughs> uh, delightful. The Brood. Yeah, I'll say The Brood. Yep. <laughs> uh, such a, uh, Amor or The Hudsucker Proxy? Hudsucker. Uh, I'd, uh, yeah, I'd watch Hudsucker first. Amor or Next Friday? Oh, Amor. Yeah, Next Friday was not Amor. Amor or the best little whorehouse in Texas? Whorehouse, please. I hear I'll say Amor. Do you know what? Um, okay. For the writers, <laughs> this is not, there are fights worth fighting. This isn't the one. Right. Amor or Labor Day? Oh, dear. All that baking. All those peaches. All those peaches. I will say Amor. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Amor. Yeah, Labor Day. Rough. Uh, Amor, it wasn't that yeah, rough. Was I think people give it a yeah. hard... It was okay. Amor or Near Dark? Catherine Bigelow, Vampires. Oh, man. I'm going to take Near Dark. Okay, Near Dark. Amor would have been better if vampires were in it. Right? Just say Oh, it could have been a whole vampire thing. The final scene she wakes. Ugh. Right. Do you know, maybe, Andy, maybe that's why they both walk out the door together. They are actually vampires. <gasps> They're both vampires Head now. Cannon. Except her body is still there. Well, it's daytime. It's she's daytime. sleeping. Yeah, she's sleeping. Yeah. Okay, good. Right. Well, we figured that. that out. Where were you yeah. again? <laughs> Another best foreign language for best picture uh, battle. Amor or the emigrants? Oh, Amor. I'm the emigrants here. Oh, no, we, we're going to we're going to do it on this one. We're going to duke yeah. it out. All right, here we go. One, one two, two, three. three. Oh, I'm in the, the slump of it. my career. I know. Amor or Gone with the Wind? Amor. Amor. Well, that puts Amor in spot 416 on our chart. 416 out of 468, which is pretty low. That uh, drops it to an 11%. That's pretty low. Oh, dear. Well, we have talked about a lot of good movies. Yeah, we've talked about some bad ones, too. And this one is actually below some bad ones. <laughs> I, a lot of movies that we love, though, I yes, should say. Yes, that's yeah. true. Well, you know what? It's flick chart. We can't, we can't rank it against all 480-some movies. That is true. That is true. Although we could. It, didn't, it would just take some time. It, didn't, it, it wasn't that far off in my own list. Uh, how to do on yours? It landed in spot. It, it, like I said, it climbed. It ended up. I mean, it was really low, like toward the bottom. Now it's more toward the middle. It's landed in spot twenty four seventy one out of forty four sixty three, or about a forty five percent. There we go. So it's only slightly better than mine. Landed at eight fifty one out of fourteen sixty five. That's a forty two percent, according to the uh, algorithm. If I go by uh, Flickchart's recommendation over at letterboxcom slash the next reel, this should be a two star film. Honestly, I turned it off and I thought, yeah, that's about a two star for me, but I'll probably give it a heart. Uh, it's one of those weird letterboxed uh, head controversies where I didn't enjoy my experience with it, but I'll go ahead and give it a heart because I represent, I, I recognize the performative aspects of this film were, were quite good. And see, I'm, I'm a little backwards from you. I'm ranking it higher because I see a lot of strong qualities in it, but I'm not giving it a heart. I gave it three and a half without a heart. So that's that was kind of my way of thinking, a little opposite of you. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? It actually averages out, I think, probably about where it needs to be. Two and three quarters with a heart. There you go. Fair enough. All right. Well, I'm kind of glad this one is is under our belts. Where do we go from here? 
Well, we're in the uh, the window of best uh, foreign language films nominated for best picture, where they've they're catching on. If they give it a one word title, it's gonna be have a better chance of getting in here. <laughs> a more, and then a few years later, 2018, we have Roma, Alfonso Cuarón's autobiographical film about his youth, and uh, I'm looking forward to jumping back into that one. And, uh, you know, if I have time, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what some of the Criterion bonus features are. I don't know if I will, but um, I sure hope I get a chance because it is a it is a loaded, loaded disc. Beefy, beefy movie. All right. Well, I can't wait to do that when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Sometimes they do. And uh, I, I feel like I didn't I didn't go to Amazon, Andy. I'm going to, that's, just, that's uh, the truth <laughs> of it. I didn't even go the to Amazon because out. I was so curious. I was so curious what would happen over at uh, commonsensemedia.org. Uh, Have any kids seen this movie? And what do they think about kids seeing this movie? Because it is... <laughs> it's an experience that they are so far from, uh, right? So I thought, I wonder what the kids are saying. And it turns out three kids have seen this movie. And the general consensus is that Common Sense Media is way too hard on this movie, believe it or not. So I'm going to just read you a couple of snippets. Uh, a 13-year-old says, first off, this is a stellar movie and the best foreign language film I've ever seen. 13 years old. Wow. Now that's now that that's out of the way, Common Sense in a fashion similar but less justified to what they did to Romeo and Juliet rated the age way too high. The only reason I can think to justify that a mature 13-year-old couldn't watch this is that they wouldn't be interested, which is true, especially considering it's a French movie. There's one scene of violence. You've given movies with several scenes of violence three dots. And honestly, while the female lead is shown bathing, nothing is shown. You're way too hard on this movie. A 14-year-old says, this is a one-of-a-kind achievement. It's filmed with passion with a disturbing plot. Five stars. Here's another 14-year-old. Amour is riveting, moving, and powerful, but it is not enjoyable or appealing to teens. This is a strongly acted film done with passion and style. It is absorbing, although depressing, and somehow dark, but again, in a sad way. All three of these kids, teens... Five stars. No, I lied. Five, four, and five. Wow. Mine uh, couldn't sit through it. I tried. Yeah. They were bored. That's a, I didn't even bother trying with mine. Yeah. <laughs> like, woof. What did Amazon have to say? Well, Amazon, as you know, there are always a crop of people who are very upset that it's in uh, in a different language there than are. English. Yes. And uh, it's surprising. <laughs> this was in English. I returned it. One star. But... I do have a one star from Amazon customer who had this to say, when the stroke hits your wife and it will take her life, that's amore. <laughs> I hated this movie. No. I don't know who would like this movie. Probably clinically depressed people who need that little nudge to push them off the edge. It's sad and depressing and rings way too close to home from, from personal experience. I don't watch movies to have a grim reality cloaked around me like a heavy fog of mustard gas. That's what the news is for. <laughs> <laughs> First singing review. 
that's, that's why people come. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that's a more. <sighs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.